0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, I'd like to pause in our Sabbath series to preach a message in honor of our brother Chris, as well as all the other elders who have answered the call to lead at this church over the years. It's not an easy calling and uh, you know I remember the early years when we didn't know what we're doing and we had very little, I, I would say put it this way, our funds were far less than our vision. And so every dollar counted and we would agonize over how to invest every bit of money that was given to the Lord's work in order to see this church advance and bring glory to God. And there was so much planning and discussion involved in that process that we would start our budget planning meeting with the elders at 6.30 p.m., and by the time we came up for air, someone would say, I hear birds, and then it would be 5.30, 6 a.m., and we'd go to Denny's, we'd finish the meeting with breakfast, and then we'd all go to work. And because these guys had day jobs and they went to work, I couldn't go home and sleep. (laughs) So I went to work, too, and I was like, man, these brothers are committed. It wasn't just the long hours and the hard work, though. I think one of the heaviest things about leading in the church is the weight you carry for the lives of others and for the way that you feel so much of what they're going through. You feel all the anxiety, even the anger that people feel, and it weighs on you. And there are so many points in an elder's life where the great temptation is to exit. And I want to preach a message that speaks to how difficult it can be and yet how natural it is when we see God to answer that call. And I say it not just to honor the people who have done it already, but because sitting in this room right now are people on whom God has placed a call on your life. And you may not realize that there's a call on your life yet, but I believe in the years to come, he will reveal that to you. And I want to help you navigate how to respond to that calling. Because I don't believe calling is just for one season of our life and we answer it and then we do our our part and we move on. I know Chris and Shin, they're done with eldering the church, but they're not done serving. They're waiting on God for a fresh vision of how to serve him next. And that's true of every person who has once served here as an elder. And as moved on, I believe that God's call in our lives is a lifelong thing. And in every season, he renews that call. I want to borrow from Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight, which catalogs the calling of Isaiah. And you might expect an origin story to appear in the beginning of the narrative. That's what I would expect. But Isaiah's origin story begins in chapter six. And that's a really curious choice. A lot of scholars have wondered why does his calling occur by the sixth chapter of the book rather than the first? And many theories have been forwarded, but if you ever take the time to read Isaiah 1 through 5, I think at least one real explanation is this. It sets the stage for this man's calling because no one is called into a vacuum. Every one of us is called by God into a real situation in their lives, in our lives, and in the world around us. We don't just get called. We get called into a real situation. And chapters 1 through 5 reveal for us the context in Isaiah's life and in Isaiah's times in which he lived. And it wasn't a pretty picture. Those first five chapters are some of the most poetic, the most heart-wrenching, the most honest words you can find in Scripture. If you ever have time to read Isaiah 1 through 5, I will tell you, if you begin, you're not going to be able to stop. And they are really powerful words in which God describes a bleak picture of how far his people have fallen from where he first called them to be. They've been divided by civil war. They were now existing as two separate nations in a kind of Cold War state between themselves. And there was the nation of Israel to the north with 10 tribes and the nation of Judah to the south with two tribes. They were a divided nation. And in chapters 1 through 5, God, in the most personal language, delivers his grievance against both nations, but especially against Judah. Because Israel had already fallen very far from God to the north. But in the south, Judah had remained faithful. But now it looked like they were falling down with their brothers and sisters. It describes people who are really diligent in religion, but spiritually dead. They never missed a festival, a a service at the temple. They were really religious people. But what he said was, if I look at your hearts, there's nothing alive in in there. You are so faithful at all the ceremony, but you have missed out on the life, which I've promised to those who follow me. He proclaimed that the land was full of violence and injustice and it was filled with the sounds of distress from people who were not being helped by their brothers and sisters. The leaders were corrupt and negligent. The prideful, wealthy people of the land kept amassing more and more wealth, more and more luxury, and they spent their days in drunken partying. Those are not my words. They're exactly described this way. All day long, they wake up early to get into their drink, and they don't stop until night, and they don't care about anyone or anything else but their own pleasure. The worship of idols was rampant in the land, and so God proclaims over them that he would deliver his judgment against them in the form of foreign invaders who would come and take their land, their cities, their people, and oppress them. The picture that's painted in Isaiah 1 through 5 is a situation in which people looked for hope in every direction, and they couldn't find it in their churches, in their religion. They couldn't find it in their government. They couldn't find it in wealth and business. Everywhere they looked, there was no hope. Corruption everywhere. Brokenness everywhere. Does that remind you of anything? He could be describing the United States in 2023. It was a hopeless picture, and yet it is the setting in which God delivers to Isaiah the defining call on his life that would change everything from that day forward. In verse 1, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah's calling is anchored to an event in history, the death of the king of Judah, a man named Uzziah. Here's why that's important. Uzziah had been mostly a pretty good king. He had had some pretty big flaws, but by and large, most of his life, he had been a faithful king to, to Judah. And under his leadership, Judah had expanded their borders. He had fortified their position, strengthened them militarily, financially. So they were pretty strong. And that was important because their neighbors to the north remained a threat and there were other powerful nations rising up all around them who were eyeing the riches of the land of Israel and wanted to conquer them. The only thing holding them at bay was the strength that, that Uzziah had brought to the nation of Judah. So when he died, their true vulnerability became really clear. Under the Assyrians, especially under, under a, uh, an emperor named Tiglath Pileser III, the Assyrians were brutal, brutal people, and they were looming large on the horizon, likely to be the ones who would take over and, and be God's hand of punishment against Judah. Not only was the situation really bleak, but the assignment that God gave to Isaiah was not a fun, feel good assignment. When when asked what the message would be, this was God's response later on in that chapter. In verses 9 through 10, God says, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. Turn. And be healed. I don't know about you, but if God asked me to preach that message to my people, I wouldn't want to do it. It's not a message that's gonna get a lot of buy in. People aren't gonna enjoy hearing that. But here was the indictment of God against against Judah. That for so long they had committed themselves to harden their hearts against the voice of God, that they had brought themselves to a point that it no longer mattered what they heard or what they saw, nothing would be able to break through the hardness of their hearts. God had not imposed that on them. They had chosen that for themselves. By a habit over decades and decades of rejecting God, they have hardened their hearts to a point where no matter what they saw or what they heard, nothing would break through. And so Isaiah was raised up by God to deliver a message to his people. This is where you really are. And you need to know this and wake up. Because God is bringing judgment over us as a people for our unfaithfulness to him. This is not the the best way to start a message because it's already pretty negative. But here's the truth of it we have this way of assuming that God's call will come in our lives when everything is wonderful. When all the stars line up perfectly, the situation is great so that I have all this time, all this energy, and no stress in my life, and I'm going to just do what God wants. But the crazy thing is so often when God calls people, it's in the midst of a really hard context in the world around them, a really hard situation in their own personal lives, and often it's to an assignment that is really difficult to carry out. I don't know that saying yes to God has ever been easy or cheap, but the ones who have said yes to that calling have discovered in the hardness something that you cannot gain any other way. Isaiah says yes to God in hard times and to a hard assignment, and the question we want to explore this morning is, how on earth did he come to a point where he could say such a hard yes? Notice in Isaiah 6, 1, that it says, In the year that the king who kept us safe died, what does he see? In the year that our king, our protector dies, I saw the Lord. And what he means is this. On the year that everyone was quaking with fear, stressed out because our protector was dead, I saw the true king who actually keeps us safe. At a moment when Judah appeared to be leaderless and defenseless, Isaiah is given a vision of God on the throne, very clearly in charge. He's not pacing around the room. He's not worried. He's sitting on a throne. Sitting is a pose that reflects calm and and poise and control. This is important for us to hear today because if you pay attention to the situation around you, this world right now will produce nothing but anxiety. And despair. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, how many of you have checked out of social media, not just for Lent, but to save your own soul? The toxicity out there. The hatred expressed so easily. People who hardly know each other. Just trashing one another without listening back. If you look at the world today, it will produce anxiety. It will create despair in us. And it's very easy for us to keep looking around and becoming more and more and more worried and broken and defeated. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to get past that. But if we would seek a vision of God as he truly is, what we would see is a God not joining us in the panic, but seated on his throne firmly in control. None of this takes him by surprise, and he's not worried about the outcome of the fights in this world. Our God prevails, and even though your eyes may show you a different story, it's so important for us to remember in times when we're tempted to panic that God wins. He wins every time. He will not fail his people or his kingdom. And I can't imagine a more important time in human history than now to remind one another of that truth. That God wins. He remains seated on his throne. He is in control. And the scale of it is this, that just, you can imagine, I wish someone would make a movie about this or would paint a really good, I I looked for art online this week that showed Isaiah sitting in front of the throne. I couldn't find any. I tried using AI to create the art myself. Computers aren't any better than us. Just picture the scale of this. He's, in front of this giant throne, if you've ever visited the Lincoln Memorial, you see this giant statue sitting, there's nothing. He's sitting there and this cavernous space in the temple is filled just by the train of his robe. That's the bottom part of his robe. And the idea is this, when you're out there away from God's presence, everything looks unbelievably, impossibly Huge. The problems, the pain, the brokenness, it seems irreparable. It seems like something we can't do anything to respond to. And then you enter the presence of God, and the scale of it is meant to tell a message. There's nothing bigger than this God. Nothing. There's no problem we face which He is powerless to show up and help us. Hovering around God, verse 2 reveals were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Seraphim, in Hebrew, literally translates to burning ones. Whatever else they look like, this was an ancient person's description of beings who were so bright and radiant, it's like they were on fire. These are beings that if we met them in person, saw them, we would be tempted to bow down and worship them. They would be so transcendent, so other than us. And yet even these beings in the presence of God can hardly stand to look at him. And so they cover their eyes and they cover their feet as if to say I'm overwhelmed by the glory of this God. These are beings we would be tempted to worship and they can hardly stand To be in the presence of God without covering themselves. I don't know about you, but I find angelic beings a little hard to relate to. So let me tell you a story that will give you an an on-ramp to understanding this dynamic. Back in 2009, Jeannie and I attended an event and we met this guy. Jeannie will never forget. (laughs) I want to forget. (laughs) This guy's name is Yul Kwan. And he was other <laughs> than me. It was a little hard not to be awestruck. He was the keynote speaker at this event, and we had been drawn there because we'd watched him win Survivor Season 13, Cook Island. And he won it in a convincing manner. He did it with such class, and we were like, wow, this dude's awesome. Uh, I think my wife was a big fan for other reasons, too. Doesn't hurt that he was tall, has a six pack. He graduated from Stanford and then Yale Law School. He was named in 2006 and 7 as one of People Magazine's sexiest men alive. <laughs> he was an FBI Academy lecturer, a special correspondent with CNN, a deputy chief at the Federal Communications Commission. And the list could go on and on. And I'm standing next to this guy. And immediately I'm feeling like we're not the same species. And you should have seen, I didn't include it, but a bunch of people from our church went to this event and all the wives took a picture with him. It's a shameful photo. It should be deleted. They were so giddy. Some of you remember. I share that story because I'm reminded of something, that when you're in the presence of someone somehow greater than you, you're immediately aware of your less than this. You can't help it. Even if you want to be prideful, it's really hard. It's it's really hard to maintain that when you know deep down in your gut we're not the same. And one of the ways that you know that you've been in God's presence is that you feel that immediately. But here's why I shared this story, because as far as the gap that exists between me and Yule Kwan, if you ever met us both at the same time, you'd agree there's something different. We both exist on a continuum of created beings. <laughs> now I had to be careful to say not drawn to scale, okay? But here's an amoeba, there's me, there's Yul Kwan, and there's a sixth-winged burning angels. Now, it doesn't matter how you scale this diagram. The point is we are all part of a line of beings that have been created, and we're separated from each other by degrees and increments. So maybe on this line, you will be ahead of Yul Kwan. Some of you are already thinking, eh, I'm definitely like maybe halfway to the seraph. And some of us are like, I'm closer to Amoeba. It doesn't really matter because on this line, we all share one commonality. We are all created beings. We're finite. We're measurable. And the only difference between us is increments. It's degrees. It's shades of gray. But what these seraphim are declaring all day long is holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That word doesn't just mean, holy doesn't just mean moral righteousness. It means complete otherness. What they're saying is, here we are thinking that we're at least higher than the humans. And yet in the presence of God, we recognize he's not just way down this line. He's not even on the line. He is different than us in such powerful ways that you can't develop a standard of measure by which to compare us to God. To be in the presence of God is to immediately understand you are in the presence of one who cannot be compared to anyone or anything else it provokes an immediate reaction. It's not a prepared reaction. If you ever seen the footage of people, especially I'll say girls in the 60s when the Beatles were giving concerts, and you see the ecstasy, the panic screaming, like I don't know where that comes from, but they scream like someone is stabbing, and it's because none of that is prepared, it's just the ecstatic reaction to being in the presence of someone that overwhelms you, you're so drawn to that person and you can't control it. That is the expression of being in the presence of one who is truly transcended, not even on the line of measure by which you compare yourself to every other being. When we're in the presence of God, we're not just aware of his greatness and his size, But immediately, everyone who has ever been recorded in Scripture as being in God's presence has the same single reaction, and that is they're immediately aware of their uncleanness compared to the cleanness and purity of God. It's not that God is pointing it out in them. It's not that they had just gotten done doing something heinous. It's that in the presence of one so pure, the first thing you're immediately aware of is how impure and unclean you are. And so Isaiah says to himself can he can't suppress it these words just burst out woe to me i cried i am ruined for i am a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty that hebrew word for woe is oi it's why a lot of Jewish people still today say, "Oi!" It's a way of saying, oh my goodness. No words. I can't really speak in the presence of such a one as God. I cannot maintain any sense of pride and self-righteousness in the presence of God. It's not possible to hang on to that if you spent any time in the presence of the one true living God. Immediately your true reaction to the presence of God is not well I'm pretty good. It's I whoa, oi. I'm so unclean compared to this God. Another way of saying it is that Isaiah is expressing this. The greatest barrier to my serving God is not how hard my situation is or how hard the assignment is. The greatest barrier to serving God is me. That I am inadequate to serve such a holy God. And this is not something he says because he's down on himself. He has a low view of himself. It's because he has immediately seen such a high view of God. He cannot imagine such a God would want to or could use him in any meaningful way. The greatest barrier we have to overcome in serving God is not how hard it is to say yes, but how inadequate we really feel in the presence of God to say yes to anything. Don't hear this the wrong way. I'm not saying that the most spiritual outlook is to have a very low view of yourself. That's not what this was about at all. It was about an insuppressible, irrepressible response to seeing God as he truly is. Immediately, you understand who you are. To see God is at the same moment to immediately understand something true about yourself. To be given a clear and perfect mirror by which to understand who you really are. And in that moment, when you feel that there's no way you can remain standing, God does a remarkable thing. These words are basically Isaiah's confession that he has no right to consider himself someone usable by God, someone measurable by God, acceptable to God, not as he stood. And so he just said, oy, woe to me. And he admitted who he truly was because he saw who God truly is. And then the next two verses record a remarkable thing that happens. One of these angelic burning beings flew down and took a live coal from the altar. And he touched Isaiah's mouth. Now, Chris, you're about to get a smoker. Don't try this at home. But if you grab a live coal off a grill and you touch it to your mouth, what is your reasonable expectation of the outcome? You probably won't be able to open your mouth. It'll seal it shut and you'll cauterize your mouth. You expect that when a live coal touches the mouth, the result is a fiery burning of destruction. And when a person just says before a holy God, I am so unclean, and then one of his servants comes and grabs a live coal, what you're expecting is, oh, here it comes, Isaiah. I'll show you how unclean your mouth is. And you burn it right off. That doesn't happen. Instead, the coal touches his mouth. And instead of fiery destruction and judgment, it results in his cleansing and atonement. It's it's God's way of saying this. You acknowledge properly that the greatest barrier to me using you is you thinking you can be used. But when you, Isaiah, admitted who you truly were in my presence, I could now do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will overcome that greatest barrier. I will forgive you, cleanse you, make you someone who is useful to God and his kingdom. The greatest barrier to overcome in being having a life that is useful to God is not gaining resources or talents or training. It's not overcoming the hardness of commitments or the ability to face difficult situations. The greatest barrier is to see ourselves truly as we are before God and amid our helplessness, And our uncleanness, and ask God to take care of that great barrier for us because nothing we do can take care of that barrier for ourselves. And as God touches a person who has a true view of themselves and of him, the result is cleansing and atonement that sets the person free to be able to say yes to God. I can tell you this, the sequence of all of this Matters. Isaiah's calling serves as a template for us because it is a very dangerous thing to say yes to God before these other things have happened. It's a very dangerous thing to say, I can do that job. I can answer that calling. I can do this work without taking stock of who truly God is to you, without having spent time in his presence taking stock of who he is. And immediately then in that reflection, saying, him, the forgiveness that sets you free to be able to say, here I am, send me. I grew up in the mission, training in seminaries and missions and evangelism. I heard this verse quoted so many times growing up. God, after all this happens, does an interesting thing. He doesn't give Isaiah a command he asks a question, a seemingly rhetorical question into the air to which Isaiah is invited to respond. And he says, who shall I send? Isaiah's like, there's no one else here, it's just me. And God's like, who, who should I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah finally, because of everything else that has happened, is in a position to say, here am I. When he says that, he knows who the I is. Here am I. I don't know how you're going to use me. Here am I. Would you send me? I think that's the only state in which we can say yes to God in a way that keeps our souls intact. And I want to say this especially to the young people in this room who are still trying to figure out why you're on this planet, why you're alive. And right now, that may not be the question that keeps you up at night, but a time is coming where that question will become incredibly important. Now, I just want you to hear this and file it away in your hearts and your minds for your future. You'll never be able to make sense of that question until you've spent time truly in the presence of God. And you'll know you've spent time with him because you won't be able to speak or argue or debate. You won't be able to tell God what you're like. You will see in that moment who he is and who you are. That moment first happened for me in the summer of 1984. And I've never been the same. I've not been able to unsee the God who showed himself to me that day. I don't do this work because I'm getting rich. I don't do this work because it's fun. But for those in this church, and there are so many examples around for you to see, who have said yes to God again and again for years and years and years, it is simply because it is impossible to stop seeing the God who once showed Himself to you. That's all we can ask for is not that you would make decisions or change your life, but that you would see God in such a way that no human being would have to convince you to do anything. That you would see God and immediately it would change the way you measure the worth of everything else in your life. So that when the moment comes for you to answer the question, who will go? Whom shall I send? with humility. The only response you'll be able to make is, here I am. I'll go. Send me. I've been praying for you guys a lot that this will be the thing that God does in your life. I know that your parents are praying that for you. I know that many adults in this church are praying that for you. Please don't follow and imitate the choices of others who have gone before you. Beg God to show himself to you. Ask him. You'd be surprised how willing he is to answer that prayer. Just say, God, if you're really, really there, I'm so tired of just going to church. It's not fun like it was when I was in Seeds. I'm so tired of just going to a building every Sunday, having to wake up early. If you're real, I want to know you. I want to see you. Would you beg God to show you his face, his presence. It's way better than faking it for 20 years and pretending you like church. I can tell you that. And if you will be in his presence see him, he might just call you to do something with your earthly life that matters eternally. That doesn't mean you're going to become a pastor or a missionary or an elder, but it means that everything from that point will make a difference for eternity because you belong to him. My my hope and my prayer for our whole church is that we will become a people who know how to say, whatever you ask, whenever you ask it, whatever the cost, my answer will be yes. We're not going to get there until we've gone through all the other things that Isaiah went through. So my real prayer for us is we will be a people who have spent time in the true presence of God. In the moment we see him, we've seen ourselves. We're unraveled by it. We're brought to a place of repentance. And God, instead of destroying us in judgment, will touch us with atonement and forgiveness and set us free to be useful to him. I pray that every one of us will live a life that matters, that our lives will please God, There's a whole generation coming up we are supposed to fill the shoes that men like Chris and women like Shin leave vacant. It may be your turn. Would you ask God to show you a fresh vision of yourself and of him so that when you say yes, you say yes and truly mean it? I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. It's getting harder and harder to read this room. I have no idea what's going on out there, but I think God already knows where you are with him. And so in this moment, as I stop talking, I'm going to invite God to continue talking to each of us. A sermon is what one person is saying on God's behalf to everyone, but it's in the moments after that the infinite God, who is so personal, starts to speak to each of us. In these next moments, would you quiet the voice that keeps shouting? Because probably, like, like me, you have one, and right now it's screaming. It's screaming things that are training you to think and feel what you feel all the time. Would you just for a moment ask that voice to be quiet, just for a second, so that the living God can speak now. Say something to you, which you need to hear. Don't worry about the people sitting next to you. Just you, sitting before God. Ask him, here I am. Do you have something to say to me? So just give you a minute to listen to his voice. And then we'll sing a song and we'll close out our service.